Podglomerate original. Hey, podcast listeners. Are you planning holiday travel, dreaming of your next big adventure, or finally satisfying your wanderlust? If so, the next step might just be checking out Expedia's podcast, Out Travel the System. More than travel hacks, Out Travel the System breaks down travel-related stereotypes and showcases just how much there is to see and experience in the world. You'll hear from expert guests like Condé Nast's former creative director, Yolanda Edwards, and industry pioneer, Jessica Nabongo, who is the first black woman to visit all the countries in the world. However, and wherever you travel, follow Out Travel the System everywhere you listen to podcasts. Hey, Trailweight listeners. Before we start today's episode, I wanted to quickly tell you about another podcast, The Carbon Copy. Climate change can often feel like a far-off problem or tend to be siloed as a scientific story. But everything is a climate story. And that's where The Carbon Copy comes in. Hosted by climate reporter Stephen Lacey, The Carbon Copy covers climate change by connecting it to the significant cultural, economic, business, and tech trends that shape the world around us. Produced by Postscript Media and Canary Media, the carbon copy informs, enlightens, and sparks curiosity about how a changing climate affects our lives. From Russia's war on Ukraine to the housing crisis to decisions handed down from the Supreme Court, the carbon copy explores how climate change and the energy transition connect to today's biggest stories. To hear more, follow and subscribe to the carbon copy on Apple Podcasts. Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Throughout this podcast, we've looked at the actions leading up to the Supreme Court case, Sierra Club v. Morton, a landmark legal case in which the Sierra Club sued the United States Secretary of the Interior, Rogers Morton, in an attempt to block the Disney Company from constructing a ski resort on federally owned Mineral King Valley in California's Sierra Nevada mountain range. But what does this case mean for us today? Disney's Mineral King and the Sierra Club v. Morton case serve as a reminder that, at least on its face, multiple interests believing they're doing what's best can often come up with different conclusions. And while there are often ways to figure out which is actually quote-unquote right, there's also value in examining why multiple people trying for the same result can end up so far apart. Yeah, I think you could say that there were, that they had good intentions. I mean, for I me, that often means asking myself what it means to be a responsible outdoors person. This often leads to more questions like, how can we balance enjoying the outdoors and protecting the natural world for future generations? And that often leads to even more questions like, should these even be questions we're asking? Sierra Club v. Morton is about one system's attempt to answer these questions. A system that arguably shouldn't be involved in deciding this answer. A system that at best is flawed, yet still better than most alternatives. But as we looked at earlier in the series, a system built on the idea that land and nature can be owned and that doesn't have any inherent rights of its own. Right now, they can't just like move the needle. To the this leads to more questions like, should that even be the starting place for this system? 
but we're here. And we're in this system. Maybe we can change it. But for the time being, and during Sierra Club v. Morton, this is the system. I'm Andrew Steven, and this is Trailweight, a podcast about hiking outdoors and lessons learned along the way. If you're looking for another podcast to listen to, check out Vanishing Postcards. Hosted by Evan Stern, Vanishing Postcards is all about being outside, on the open road, and seeing new places. In the latest season, Vanishing Postcards invites listeners to drive cross-country on Route 66 and experience everything from a dance in Tulsa to an eating contest in the Texas Panhandle to a morning on the Santa Monica Pier. Vanishing Postcards explores how this iconic road's past, present, and future are revealed through the stories of the people and places on Route 66 today. If you're looking for an episode to try, check out Postcards from the Mother Road, The Roots of Route 66, and hear all about how the legend of Route 66, which spans almost 7,000 miles, came to be. You can join their road trip by following Vanishing Postcards wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, BetterHelp. When learning how to backpack, one of my first purchases was a small, portable butane stove. And the first thing I saw when I opened the box was a small folded-up set of instructions. After a quick read, I turned it on, and it worked without a problem. Unfortunately, not everything comes with a set of instructions. And life is one of those things without a user manual. And most of it isn't problem-free. So when life's not working, it's normal to feel stuck, lost, and unsure of how to proceed. We may not have an instruction booklet for life, but thankfully there are people trained to help us navigate a career change, work through relationship issues, and help us approach feelings of stress, anger, or anxiety. I've personally found therapy to be beneficial in talking through complex issues, processing pain, learning productive skills, and so much more. And BetterHelp has connected more than 3 million people with the help they need. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try or are having trouble finding the right help, BetterHelp is a great option. It's convenient, accessible, and affordable. And, as the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists, all available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. You can easily switch to a new therapist anytime if things aren't clicking. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms. No traffic. No endless searching for the right therapist. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com wait. That's Better, H-E-L-P, dot com slash W-E-I-G-H-T. In June 1972, after a 4-3 U.S. Supreme Court rejection of the Sierra Club's lawsuit because they had not established the club was suffering direct harm due to a future ski resort, the Sierra Club amended its suit in an attempt to retry and win their case, stopping development of Disney's Mineral King Ski Resort. The Sierra Club vs. Morton, which is the Supreme Court case that comes out of it, is maybe the most underappreciated environmental law case by people in general. This is historian and PhD candidate Jesse Rittner. We had him on episode one talking about the history of skiing in America and followed a tangent into the Sierra Club versus Morton. It's really hard to oversee how foundational that case is to environmental law. 
it will open the gates to environmental law. And that's environmental law professor Daniel P. Selmy. It's the case that opened the courthouse doors because the Supreme Court had previously said that you could have an environmental injury and that that could be the kind of injury that would allow someone to bring suit. But it hadn't answered what you had to show to bring that suit. And this court said you had to show injury. In fact, you had to show that somehow the development that was being proposed injured either your organization, but more likely your members somehow. If somebody's discharging into a body of water pollutants, you know, did your members use that body of water? Will they be harmed by that? The Sierra Club couldn't argue on behalf of their organization or the inherent rights of nature, but they could claim personal injury to the club and its members. They returned to the court and the judge issued an injunction, perhaps a clerical victory over a moral one, but seeming progress nonetheless. What it ended up with was a decision in the Supreme Court on a much broader issue, which was basically when can environmental groups uh, bring these kind of lawsuits, period. Um, and so it, it turned into a much bigger thing. Um, some people say, well, they brought the case to, to establish the precedent. No, they brought the case to stop the development if they could, because they simply had no other options left at that point. Disney now without Walt, and with growing opposition, and an expensive legal battle, and a new theme park in Florida, they continue to scale back the scope of the Mineral King Ski Resort. On October 23, 1973, the Los Angeles Times published an article, Planned Mineral King Resort Appears Doomed. As the Sierra Club continued pursuing legal options to oppose the ski park, Disney believed they would now be tied up in court for years. When the case first came down, there was some concern that a lot of environmental groups wouldn't be able to show that. But as it turned out, it hasn't been the case at all. Uh, they've been able to show that kind of use in the vast majority of cases. And then it, this was a federal case in, in federal court. Pretty much the same concept then was adopted by the state courts. So if you put those two things together, that's why you get environmental lawsuits creating essentially the modern framework of environmental law. Before the Sierra Club v. Morton case, environmental law in the United States was relatively undeveloped. Before this, there had been very few legal mechanisms in place to protect the environment, and individuals and organizations could not challenge government actions that could harm the environment. Regardless of its result, Sierra Club v. Morton paved the way to help develop the modern environmental law movement, establishing the right of a group to bring lawsuits to protect the environment, if they have standing. In August of 1972, California Governor Ronald Reagan withdrew his support of the project now claiming the cost to construct a new highway 
would be too expensive. The Sierra Club pressed on, and among its amendments, they added a new claim under the National Environmental Policy Act, or NEPA, which required all work on Disney's Mural King to be stopped until the completion of an environmental assessment in 1976. The final 285-page U.S. Forest Service report, almost 600 pages with all the appendices, was released in February of 1976. Disney's development was now more than a decade old, and regardless of the report's findings, the company agreed it wasn't worth pursuing any further. In return, the Sierra Club stopped pursuing its lawsuit, and ultimately the case was thrown out for lack of prosecution. Technically, the Sierra Club lost their case, but in suing the government created a practical victory, establishing the right of environmental groups to bring lawsuits to protect the environment. As a result, today, environmental groups only need to have a single member with a specific interest in the affected area, such as hiking or camping, to have standing in natural resource cases. In this way, the Sierra Club ultimately achieved their goal. Interestingly, in 1977, the U.S. Forest Service decided to revitalize the planned ski resort, but Disney had moved on, and no other efforts seemed to stick. Any speculation of a Mineral King ski resort ultimately ended in 1978, when Congress passed the National Parks and Recreation Act of 1978. As President Carter signed the bill on November 10th, the Mineral King region officially became part of Sequoia National Park. 16,200 acres of Mineral King would officially move from the National Forest Administration to Sequoia National Parks. And the National Parks and Recreation Act even included language prohibiting downhill ski facilities in Mineral King. There would be no new road, no railway to access the valley, and to this day, the old mining-era winding road still brings visitors to its landscapes to witness what was once almost a Disneyland in the mountains. Not entirely disheartened by its time in the Sierras, Disney considered recycling their ski park project on private land near Independence Lake, just north of Lake Tahoe. Perhaps, ironically, perhaps to cut off an objection before it began, or perhaps signaling a changed view of environmentalism, Disney and the Sierra Club actually worked together on the environmental study for this new resort. Though eventually, the park's development would be abandoned as well. For the Sierra Club, the Mineral King decade transitioned the club's original objectives. From its 1892 stated purposes, quote, exploring, enjoying, and rendering accessible the mountain regions of the Pacific coast 
and preserving the forest and other features of the Sierra Nevada mountains, end quote. Developing mountain tourist towns, increased car traffic and tourism in national parks, and battles over dams in Yosemite and elsewhere tested the compatibility of the Sierra Club's dual purposes. Were enjoying and preserving opposite forces? In 1949, when the Forest Service first proposed the ski resort in Mineral King, the Sierra Club championed the idea. Fifteen years later, the club's board of directors reversed its position. And by the end of the 1970s, as the Mineral King battles were finishing, the Sierra Club had officially created the Sierra Club Legal Defense Fund, now Earth Justice cementing their place as an activist organization over an exploring and enjoying club. Yes, to enjoy an area, it has to be there, and so actively working to preserve something is part of using it. But there's a difference between organizing group hikes and filing Supreme Court cases. For the Disney Company, Mineral King tarnished its nature-friendly image. Before Mineral King, Disney earned 37 awards for their work with nature conservation, with the Sierra Club even making Walt Disney an honorary life member in 1955. However, its continued legal and PR battles cost Disney its environmental image, and in 1969, Disney told the LA Times that if Walt Disney was still around, he likely would have ended the proposal in deference to environmental concerns. Do you think if Walt Disney hadn't passed away that there would be a Mineral King ski resort? You know, uh, I probably don't know enough about Walt Disney to reach a conclusion on that. Daniel, sell me again. The Disney company had a history of making these wildlife films that were very famous. I mean, I remember when I was a kid and had received all sorts of awards. They were re remarkable films that helped educate a lot of people on, on you know, the natural world. So, you know, in the long run, how would the, the environmental movement have changed perhaps Disney's attitude towards this? I don't know. Um, but, but they did have this conservationist bent to them. And it's one of the reasons I think the Disney company uh, really had it thought of itself as being unfairly attacked here because it, it thought of itself as a conservationist organization. You know, if you look at their documents regarding Mineral King, they were going to preserve Mineral King. And they thought that they could build a ski area that was going to be quite large that would still preserve Mineral King. So they, they had that mentality certainly all the way through there. And in that sense, they had something in common, I think, you know, uh, with, the, with the Sierra Club. In a 1971 issue of Ramparts magazine, an article about the endeavor summed it up this way. The beautiful old nature films of the 50s are the illusion. The reality is the determination to use all the corporation's considerable goodwill and political clout to take over via the U.S. Forest Service at Mineral King. 
It is the end to all our childhood fantasies. Mickey Mouse and Smokey the Bear conspiring to tear up the wilderness. Thinking about Mineral King and Disneyland. Here's Jesse Rittner again. Disneyland is really this interesting space in which Disney tries to build the ideal suburb. He is teaching kids how to be the perfect American. I mean, you walk down Main Street, things are sized so that kids feel like adults, right? John Finley, who's a historian from the 1990s now, calls these magic lands. Disney World is a magic land. But he compares Disneyland to things like e-resorts like Vale or Snowmass, which are these pre-planned places, to suburbs, which are these pre-planned places that really become the American ideal in between sort of 1940 and into the 60s. This is all anyone wants. They want there. Imagine communities of perfection that fit into their understanding of consumerism, their understanding of community, communities based in small places, but also where they can keep anyone they don't like out, whether they're of a different class, different race, different religion. But there's change. Change in views, change in wants. Even Disneyland. Have you walked down Main Street recently? The penny arcades and throwback stores have all changed. Yes, the storefronts still represent a magic land, but the insides are all state-of-the-art Disney merchandise machines. And I'm not even trying to say if that's good or bad. It's changed. Disney's own desire was for Disneyland to always be growing and changing, never finished, always evolving. And it did. And does our worldviews. And does the Sierra Club. And so on. But we don't always want to change. We want magic lands, whether we admit it or not. Living in a magic land doesn't require asking questions. It only asks that you accept things as they are. Disney was once known for its pristine and idyllic representations of nature, and it became a symbol of corporate overreach and industrialization, only to begin again today incorporating themes of conservation and sustainability. The Sierra Club, once a small group of conservationists, grew into a powerful force that protected the environment the ways they see fit. Even the Supreme Court, once hesitant to intervene in environmental disputes, has increasingly recognized the need for strong legal protections for our air, water, and land. And the National Park Service, once tasked solely with preserving our most beautiful places, now must also grapple with the challenges of a changing climate. What kind of world do we want to live in? What type of world do we want to leave for future generations? For me, in the end, I hope the story of my relationship with the environment is one of progress and redemption, not regret and failure. One that recognizes myself as part of nature, not separate from it, but together with it in a community, working together.
Special thanks to Professor Daniel Selmy. Again, his book, Dawn at Mineral King Valley, The Sierra Club, The Disney Company, and The Rise of Environmental Law, goes way deeper into a lot of the themes we've talked about. Also, big thanks to Jesse Rittner. You can read some of his work at jesserittner.com. That's J-E-S-S-E-R-I-T-N-E-R.com. Or on his blog, theliftline.com. And that's the-lift-line.com. And I want to say thank you so much for going on this journey with me. This is the end of season two of Trailweight, and I appreciate all of you putting in your time to listen and hopefully ask some of the same questions that I've been processing. Thank you for sharing this show with your friends, and thank you for going on the journey with me. Trailweight is produced and written by Andrew Steven. Our story producer is Monty Montepar. Executive produced by Jeff Umbro and the Podglomerate. For more information, photos, and transcripts, visit trailweight.com. You can find additional podcasts, shows, and more at andrewsteven.com. Thanks for listening. Conglomerate Original.